You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, happy Easter, church. My name is Clint, and I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, I do want you to know that we are not usually dressed up this nice, okay? This is, this is as good as it's going to get. I just want to set those expectations right off the bat. Uh, I also want to say, you know, that video is right. Easter Sunday is the day that changed the world. But the question this morning is, have you let it change you? That is the question. You know, for many people, learning about Jesus, and that's what we've been doing. We've been going through the whole book of Mark. And for many people, learning about Jesus, it's kind of like going to a museum. You know, you go and you learn about these old people in history. And man, they were great. And they did great things. And you learn about the things they did and the things they said. You may even learn about how they died. But it's just, it's just dead history, distant facts. It has no effect on your life. You leave the museum, you go, and you're exactly the same. But the empty tomb is different. See, you can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead and it not change how you walk, how you talk, how you act, how you treat people, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, everything about your life. And so what we need to know this morning is that the resurrection, it is not dead history. It is not just old facts to be known. The resurrection is the living, eternal Jesus meeting you in your life right where you are. And whispering to you, there's more. There's more than this world. There's more than death. There's more than your mistakes. There's more to live for than maybe you ever dreamed. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer for us is that today we will be changed by the resurrection. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, we do invite you into this time where we Ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that we will see you as you are, risen and living. Open the eyes of our minds, open the eyes of our hearts, that we can see you and know you and be transformed by you. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 16. We're going to read and cover the first eight verses. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Let's read together. When the Sabbath was, was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Just a quick note. Uh, most of your Bible, starting in verse 9, verse 9 through 24, they probably have a note there that says something like uh, the, our earliest manuscripts stop at verse 8. They do not contain verse 9 through 24, and that's true. And what we think has happened is you can tell it's, verse 8 is a, it's a cliffhanger. It's a very 
abrupt, in some ways, unsatisfying ending. It's like how they end a season of a TV show when they want to be sure you come back and watch the next season. And so what we think happened was, as the earliest copies of Mark began to be circulated, everyone was saying, well, what happened, Mark? What happened after that? What did they do? They didn't have the book of Acts. They didn't have the rest of the New Testament collected like we do, like we do now. So somebody, it may have been Mark himself in later copies, went and added, starting in verse 9, kind of as a prologue. To wrap it up, let me let you guys know exactly what happened. But our earliest manuscripts stop at verse 8, so that's where we're going to stop this morning. But nothing uh, in the rest of the chapter changes anything as far as Scripture goes. The first three verses, verse 1 through 3, they are meant to prove the reality of the resurrection. We've got to understand a little bit, though, how they handled death back then, how they handled uh, burial. So when we say Jesus was buried, we don't mean in the ground. We mean he was placed in a tomb, which was a cave. And they had these uh, family caves where they would actually bury uh, all the family. And so they would hold a bunch of people. And eventually, they would, their bones would end up in what we call an ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box, a box for your bones. So eventually, this tomb would have several, several ossuaries stacked. But before you can put the bones in the box, you have to let the body decay. And so that's what they were doing. And so they would actually tend to a dead body for quite some time. They would kind of mummify it. They would wrap it in these cloths, little strips of cloth. And in between the strips of cloth, they would put spices and oils trying to help uh, keep down the stank that was going to come as that body decayed, especially in the Middle Eastern climate. It was going to decay very, very rapidly. They had a little problem with the timing of Jesus' death. So Jesus died right before the Sabbath starts. Their days went from sunset to sunset. So Sabbath starts when the sun goes down on Friday. Jesus dies right before the sun goes down. So what they did with the help of Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy man, he gave them this tomb. You had to be really rich to have a family tomb like this. They got Jesus' body down off the cross. They got it in that tomb as quick as they could as the sun was going down, but then they had to leave it. And then Sabbath was ending the following sunset. So Saturday night, what would happen was some of the shops would open. So on the Sabbath, you can't touch a dead body that whole 24 hours. None of the shops are open. They couldn't go to get the oils and the spices they needed. So as the sun goes down on Saturday, the next day, the shops would open for a little bit. So they go and they're getting their oils and their spices. But sun's down at night. It is not safe for them to leave the city to go out to the tomb. It would have been unsafe. So they get the oils and spices. They go home. They got to wait for the next day for the sun to come up on Sunday morning so it's safe for them to venture out into the tomb. And so that's what we have in verse 2. They've got their oils and spices. Sun is rising. They're headed out finally to be able to tend to Jesus's body. And then in verse 3, we see their biggest concern as they're walking along. Who's going to move the stone for us? How are we going to get this big old stone out of the way, just the three of us? These big stones, they would have weighed between one and three tons. So to get there, probably several Roman soldiers that all worked together to roll it into place. They're on their way thinking, hey, maybe the soldiers will still be there. Maybe we can recruit some help along the way. I don't know, but we can't do it. That's for sure. So think about this. First three verses in, what, are, what do all of their actions show us? that the last thing that they expected to see was the resurrection. It was the last thing that they saw coming. Far from it. They, this is not a grand plan. This is not some coordinated plan. In fact, they are going to great lengths. They are bending over backwards. They are spending days trying to deal with death. 
death was their only expectation. Remember, they saw him die. They were there. They witnessed it. A Roman centurion had declared him dead. Now, this is a guy who kills people for a living. He knew a dead body when he saw one. They'd seen a spear thrust into his side and water come out separated from the blood. That means his heart had stopped pumping. But you know, maybe more than all that, they just knew how the world works. They had grieved people before. They had lost loved ones before. They know all about the cruelty, the loss, the finality of death. And so they came prepared to grieve because that's all they expected. Instead, they found hope and they found life. And they found out there's more so they get there in verse 4, and of course the most natural thing they would have seen would have been a dead body. They're already starting to decay. Instead, they find a supernatural being. We know his, he was supernatural for a couple reasons. Number one, he must have been super jacked to be able to roll that stone away. Somehow he did it all by himself. Number two, the way he's described, he has this white robe on. The word is this blinding, sparkly white. It's the word they use to describe Angels. This man is described as an angel. And the other gospels tell us outright it is an angel. And their response tells us this is a supernatural being. It says they were alarmed. This word's only used in Mark, this word for alarmed. It means to be moved to an intense emotional state because of a surprise. Something surprising happens and it moves you into this intense emotional state. So it's it's when you're seeing something but you can't quite compute. Your, brain, your eyes are working fine, but your brain can't compute. And so the first time you see the Grand Canyon or some other force of nature, when you, when you see the birth of your child or something like that, when, when what you are seeing is more than you can comprehend, that's what they're seeing. So I want us to understand, these women, they didn't, they didn't show up and, you know, all calm and cool and reverent and, oh, verily, the Lord, just as the Lord has told us just what we expected. No. They're shocked. So I want you to know this morning, Easter is for skeptics. It's for skeptics. It's for people who have a hard time believing. And it wasn't just these women. All the disciples were skeptics. We, Luke records what happened. So the women leave and they go tell the disciples what they saw. And the disciples, again, they didn't say, verily. no. 24 verse 11, it says, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. See, it's not natural to believe that there is more than this world. The most natural thing to believe is what we're all used to, the things we can see, touch, taste, hear, smell. It's called materialism. It's the world we live. We, this is the most materialistic culture the world has ever known. I, I believe what I can see and what I can prove and what I'm used to and, and what's in my experience. And yet today, today, the resurrected Christ speaks into your life and he says, you know what? There's more. There's more than just your stuff. There's more than you can see. There's more than you can comprehend. I think this is why Mark names the women. He gives us their names, which is very unusual for Mark. So throughout the gospel, he usually keeps it general. So he'll say some of the disciples 
or a crowd or a scribe. And we don't quite know who he is talking about. But Mark names these women three times in the end of his gospel and puts them, tells us exactly where they were and exactly what they saw. Why? Well, when Mark is writing this, these women are still alive. He's saying, these are their names. You can go talk to them. You can go ask them. He knows what he is writing will be met with skepticism. And he's saying, go, go ask them. They were in your shoes, I promise. Go hear what they saw. See, back then, they didn't have video cameras. Eyewitness testimony was considered uh, the, the, the most powerful, the most credible evidence in a court of law. But that something's interesting. So back then, if it was a real legitimate court of law, women were not allowed to testify. They were not considered credible witnesses. So that, I think that shows us a couple things. Number one, it shows us they didn't make this up. This isn't some grand scheme to convince everybody. If it was, it would have been Caesar who showed up or the high priest who showed up, like the most credible person they could think of. I think it shows us something else too. I mean, how redemptive that God allows these women to be the ones to tell the story. Can you imagine in in all the years that followed, how many skeptics came to these women and said, is it true? Can you tell me the story? And time after time, again and again, they got to look some fellow skeptics in the eye over and over again and tell them the story of the resurrected Jesus Christ. To tell, look people in the eye and tell them there's more. I want you to know this morning, you can do the same if you're skeptical. You can talk to someone. You can ask them what happened to them. What did they see? What did they experience? Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is still living and active and he is working in people's lives. And you know what? They'll tell you there's more. I know. I couldn't believe it either. But I saw it and I experienced. There's more than this world. There is more than we can comprehend. Next, the angel speaks to the women. He doesn't have a lot to say. But in verse 6, he shows them there is more than death. He invites them in and he says, look, see for yourself. See, they thought, hey, maybe we just got the wrong tomb. Maybe we came to the wrong place. He's saying, no, 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 you're at the right address. Come look, this is the very same place that they had laid him. And then he uses the three words that we use to celebrate every Easter. He has risen. He's not sleeping. He's not resuscitated. We didn't get out the AED and shock him. No, no, no. He was dead, dead, and now he is alive. And this changes everything. Do you realize what this means? This means the laws of decay, the laws of death that have held us all hostage since the beginning of time, this means they answer to a higher authority. This means there is something more than death. This means that death is not an end. It is actually a new beginning. See, all the humanity, think about it, all we've ever known up to this point is this endless cycle of sin and death. There seems to be no way out. I mean, we don't like it. We don't want it to be that way, but we're stuck and we can't do anything about it. I remember being a teenager, going with some friends to the Washita Parish Fair in Monroe, Louisiana. High class operation, let me tell you. I don't, know how, I don't know how we're still alive. Uh, <laughs> you know the pirate ship ride, though? You know, the pirate ship, and, yeah, and like for like a split second, you kind of float on each end. Well, me and my friends decided we need to ride that ride. And we also decided the best thing we could do, the best idea was to eat our body weight in cotton candy right before we got on the ride. It's wisdom of teenagers right there. 
So we eat the cotton candy, we get on the ride, woo, you know, we're all sitting there, strapped in, here we go, do, do, do. and I look over and my friend John, he's got that look. You know, you know the look, pale white, hand over the mouth. And at that point, everybody knew what was going to happen. Everybody knew. Nobody wanted it to happen. We couldn't stop it. We're yelling, stop the ride, let us off. I'm trying to, I'm collecting, I can't move. We can't stop it. Despite our best efforts, we can't escape it. There's no one where to run. And you know what happened? Mount Vesuvius erupts with this pink lava-looking cotton candy. You know, happy Easter, everybody. (laughs) This is our experience with death. We all know it's going to happen. None of us want it to happen. But there's no way out. So it seems. You know, I find myself thinking this week, hey, if death is so common, it's the one thing we all have in common. If death is the most natural thing in the world, why does it feel so unnatural? Why does it feel so wrong? You know, almost all of us here, we've, we have been surprised by the death of a loved one. There's many here who've had to confront your own death through a diagnosis, through an accident. And in those moments, you know, we, we experience the most intense pain, the most intense grief of our lives. We experience shock. We find ourselves saying, no, this can't be right. This can't be happening. Why do we, re- why do we react that way? It's because our souls are trying to tell us we are meant for more. It was death that caused Jesus to weep. He shows up and his friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus wept because this was not part of God's original plan. We were created for life. But because of our sin, our rebellion, death invaded. And Jesus wept because it broke his heart to see what death does. So I think in a sense, in a sense, we are all like those three women. We are all asking the same question. Who can roll the stone away for us? Will someone please open this tomb of death? This week I heard an interview with Ken Burns. Now, if you know who Ken Burns is, uh, you're a nerd like me. Welcome to the club. If you don't know who that is, congratulations, you have a life. People would rather invite you over to their house and have a party with you. (laughs) Ken Burns is probably the most renowned documentary maker in America, and almost all his documentaries are about old American history, times before there was any video, any audio, and so he all, he's only working with these kind of old, faded, still photographs. But he's become famous for doing things, that, finding ways to kind of bring these still photographs to life. So he'll put sound in the background, he'll pan the camera across the still photograph. In fact, if you use an Apple product and you get in their photo video editing software, they will have something called the Ken Burns effect. They named it after him because he invented this way of of making these still photos come to life. In the interview, he gets to talking about his mom. His mom died when Ken was just a little boy, died of cancer. Suddenly, unexpectedly, he talks about how his dad was not equipped to raise him and his brother on their own. He ended up struggling with mental illness on his own. And so Ken talks about how very hard that was. He said that this death, the death of his mom, shaped his whole life. But he said, I didn't realize how much it had shaped my life and how much it even shaped my career. 
until someone told me, someone kind of bragging on my documentaries, bragging on the work, my work, and they looked at me and they told me, they said, you know what you do? What you do is give life to the dead. They said, that's when it hit me. I'd spent my whole life trying to give life to the dead because of my mom. I mastered the ability to make still photographs of dead people appear alive, searching for a way to bring the dead back to life. You know what Ken is saying there? I think he's saying the same thing those three women are saying on the way to the tomb. Who can roll the stone away from me? Who can give life to the dead? And men and women, listen, Ken Burns can make a mean documentary. He cannot bring the dead back to life. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said right after he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, he looked at them and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And Easter is saying to you this morning, there's more than death. Death is not the end. The resurrection is not just a fact to figure out. It is not just dead history. It is your source of hope. It is telling you this morning, there is more than the death and the suffering that we experience. But you know what? Maybe you hear that this morning and you think, that's true for the good people. Like, that's true for the people who are here every Sunday or something. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've failed and walked away and then returned to walk back away and that's you I want you to know this morning the resurrection means there is more than your mistakes there is more than your mistakes in verse 7 the the angel gives him it's the only instructions he gives him the only things he tells him go tell the disciples you know the disciples I mean think about what we've seen them say and do in the gospel of Mark. Think about all their failures. Mark has been relentless in showing us all their mess ups, all their misunderstandings. They're always, they're always freaking out about how, where are we going to get the bread? They're always arguing about who's the most important and it only gets worse at the end. At the end, one of them betrayed him. One of them denied him, but they all abandoned, they all abandoned Jesus, every single one of them. You know where they are now? They are cowering in the upper room, afraid, frozen, but their story isn't over yet because Jesus came back for them. And he didn't come, listen, he didn't come back to shame them. He didn't come back like nanny, nanny, boo, boo, y'all were all wrong, suckers. No, no, no. He came to tell them there is more than your mistakes. And perhaps, perhaps no failure was bigger than Peter's. And so it's very interesting to me. The angel, he singles out Peter. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Remember Peter? Mr. No, oh, I'll never deny you. And then like two hours later, he's denied Jesus three times. He cowers in fear of a teenage girl. You know what he does? He calls down curses on Jesus. Now listen, when you call down curses on Jesus, that is you taking your discipleship membership card and just ripping it up. And you're done. You're out. And so I think he probably has to single out Peter because it's probably not apparent to anyone in this moment that Peter is still one of the disciples. I mean, he packed it up. He went home. He's going back to fishing. Just the way life was before Jesus ever came, or so he thinks. And if Jesus stays in the grave, Peter is defined by his greatest failure. But because he didn't, because he rose, because of the resurrection, Peter's failure is not final. And neither is yours. Your failure is not final. 
Because the resurrection means, listen, it means Jesus is looking for you. Do you notice this? Jesus, he didn't wait for the disciples to come to him. The angel didn't say, hey, tell all those failures when they realize how wrong they were, or they can come crawling back to me. No, no, no. He sent a message to them. He went looking for them. And so maybe this morning you've blown it. You know? You didn't plan on failing, but you did. You didn't plan on losing faith, but here you are. Like Peter, you've packed it up and you've gone home. And maybe you've stopped looking for Jesus. Maybe, listen, maybe you're here just to make a parent happy or a a spouse happy or a sibling happy, something like that. But you have long since given up looking for Jesus. But maybe all of a sudden you realize he's looking for you. He's looking for you. And he has a message of grace for you. And he is whispering to you, there's more than your mistakes. Maybe you've been a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. You know, one Easter, a pastor saw Ghana's congregation, only came at Easter, hadn't been there all year. And so he makes a beeline for this guy. And the pastor tells him, son, you need to join the army of the Lord. And he looks at his pastor and says, well, I'm, I'm already in the Lord's army. And the pastor says, well, why, how come you only come once a year? And he says, well, I'm in the secret service. Maybe you've been in the secret service for a little while. You know what? If that's the case, I bet, I bet Satan loves to throw that in your face, fill you with shame, fill you with guilt. You know, it's been my experience that what usually keeps people from returning to Jesus, it, it's simply the guilt and shame of not having done it already. The resurrection means there's more than your mistakes. You don't have to live in guilt and shame for what you've done or for what you haven't done for that matter. All the disciples' mistakes, all your mistakes, all the mistakes in the whole world are not bigger than grace. He's still looking for you. But when I say that, I want us to understand, I don't mean in some far off, distant, maybe 90 years from now, I'll know what that's like. Because the resurrection means there is more to live for right now. And so we get, we get to the end, we get to verse 8, and it's not a fairy tale ending exactly. And it's not all wrapped up in a little bow. In fact, here's how verse 8 essentially ends. The women going, ah, and running away. That's what it says. They run away, and it says they're trembling, they're astonished, they're afraid. I think we got to understand what's behind this fear and this trembling. So it, it's not haunted house fear. Like somebody jumps out or takes you with a chainsaw. This is worshipful, awe-filled astonishment. And we know that because we know what they did next. We know it changed their life forever. So much so that they completely reoriented their lives around this event, around the resurrection. We see all the disciples, they go from hiding in a room or hiding at home, and they go out and they change the world because they knew it was true. In fact, you go read the book of Acts. Every sermon, everything they tell people in the book of Acts, every sermon is about the resurrection. They're not preaching about changing the water into wine, about feeding the 5,000, about walking on water, about all these other things. No, no, no. It is all about the resurrection. They understood it. This is the central event in their life. They showed them there is more to live for. It gave them a totally new perspective on how to live in the right here and right now. Paul summarizes it in Romans 8.18. He says it this way. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so he, when he's, he writes this, he's not diminishing suffering. In fact, he experienced lots of suffering, tons of it. He's not ignoring it. He's saying this suffering is real. It hurts, but there is something so much greater. There is more. So, you, know, you know what they did? They didn't, they didn't stay in their own little small group just with their friends. They went out with the good news, and most of them probably never saw each other again. They did not go out and seek comfort and ease. No, no, most of them were martyred, and they lost everything they had. There is only one reason people sacrifice so much, and it's because they have found something better. That's the only reason. The resurrection showed them there is more to live for. Tim Keller is a great pastor and theologian. He was recently diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. That's bad. That's bad news. Instead, in fact, he said, the doctor, when he told me, he said, you will die of this disease. I can't tell you exactly when, but you will die of this disease. But Tim Keller, he said, you know, in the aftermath of that, something surprising happened. He said, cancer not only changed his view of death, it changed his view of life. He writes this, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. As God's reality dawns more on my heart slowly and painfully through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I've become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that he is. What's he saying here? He's saying, I didn't really know how to live until I realized there was more than this life. Without the resurrection, you and I, we will be constantly trying to make a heaven out of this world, and it'll never work. You will only find yourself anxious, frustrated, depressed. Your soul will be restless. But what we see from these women, what we see from the disciples, what we see from countless Christians in every corner of the world throughout every generation is that the resurrection means there's more to live for. It means there is joy and there is purpose beyond my life that changes my life. You know, I think there's a reason Mark ends his gospel the way that he does, kind of so open-ended, so abruptly. And he's done this kind of throughout his book. He, he's wanted us to be able to see ourselves in the characters that encounter Jesus. And I think it's the exact same right here. See, I think if Mark was here, he'd say the question isn't what did they do? The question is what will you do with the resurrection? There's some here today that probably need to believe, to believe that the resurrection is true. There are others today that need to live like it's true. Some of you need to believe there's more. And I know that's hard. I know, I know it's hard to believe. I know people don't come back to life. It can't be true unless it is. It's crazy unless it happened. And you can ask God this morning if it's true. You can ask him, is it true that there is more than this world, more than death, more than my mistakes? Is there more to live for? And if that's you, we would love to talk to you. You can come talk to me, any of our elders, any Christian. Just find any Christian and ask them. 
Some of us need to live like there's more. Ask yourself this morning, if the resurrection is true, what needs to change about your life? Maybe you've been trying to make a heaven out of this world and you feel the futility of that. Maybe you need to be reminded that there's hope. You you haven't lived with hope for a long time. If that's you, Jesus whispers to you this morning, there's more. There's more. There's more because of those three words. Those three words that the angel said, the three words that we repeated to one another at the beginning of worship. He is risen. And so I want us to close this morning by proclaiming to ourselves once again those three words. But maybe this time, you know, maybe this time there's a new sense of belief. Maybe this time there's a new sense of hope. There's a new sense of joy that there is more because he is risen. So let's do this. Let's stand together. Everyone stand with me. And we're going to say once again our, he, our responsive reading and proclaim to one another once again that he is risen. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He is risen. He is risen indeed. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces on the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. He is risen. risen Death has been swallowed up in victory. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. death Church, he is risen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.